What do billionaire philanthropist Bill Gates, theoretical physicist Stephen Hawking, and pop star Grimes all have in common? Well, they all consider to be one of the world's most pressing problems. G'day folks, welcome back to the channel. Today I'm gonna to share three cause areas, which I'm excited about, because I think that by supporting them, you can do an incredible amount of good. The three cause areas are global health and development, improving animal welfare, and safeguarding the long-term future. Each cause area is made up of a number of different problems you could work on. For example, within animal welfare, you could work on improving the conditions of factory farmed animals, or developing delicious alternatives to them. Of course, there are lots of pressing problems in the world, and choosing which one to support is difficult. It's gonna depend a lot on what you value and what problems your personal skills or resources are best suited for. I talk a lot about this in my last video on choosing a cause, link below in the description. In that video, I talked about a cause prioritization framework that's used a lot in the effective altruism community to help work out what the world's most pressing problems are. As a quick recap, the framework involves considering three factors. One, scale, how big of a problem is it? Two, neglectedness, how much attention is this problem already getting? And three, tractability, are there ways of making progress on this problem? To see how this works, let's start by looking into global health and development. There are millions of people in low-income countries whose lives could easily be improved by evidence-based, cost-effective interventions. If you're someone who wants to make sure you're helping others in need, wherever they may be, this cause area might be right for you. Let's start by considering the scale of the problem. As of 2015, there are over 700 million people living in extreme poverty, and that's defined as living on less than roughly two US dollars per day, already adjusting for the difference between what $1 can buy in a high-income country versus what it can buy in a low-income country. That is just incredible. But is the problem neglected? Well, that's a tricky question, because it really depends on how you look at it. On the one hand, over 150 billion US dollars is given each year by wealthy countries in the form of grants and loans aimed to help support countries in need. But on the other hand, this only makes up 0.3% of those countries' gross national income. And that doesn't seem like enough. The other issue is that a lot of this is not spent as effectively as it could be. And many of the most promising ways of providing support lack the funding needed. What is promising is that it seems that the problem is quite tractable there are ways we can make progress. That's because there are still tens of millions of people in low-income countries whose lives could easily be improved by inexpensive interventions. And this isn't cutting-edge medicine. It's things that are so commonplace that we barely have to think about them in high-income countries. Things like making sure kids get vaccinated and have the nutrients they need to avoid predictable health issues. That's why we've seen such amazing progress with all of the support that has been provided so far. Rates of extreme poverty are going down. People are living for longer all over the world. Of course, it can be tricky to know what the best ways to help are. And in an upcoming video, I'll consider some objections and misconceptions about how impactful foreign aid really is and whether it just causes dependency. It doesn't. A huge amount of this progress has come from research and there are some really inspirational figures who have improved the lives of millions of people. One example is the American public health scientist, Grace Elderling. She was born in the year 1900 into a family who had just immigrated to the US. And when she was five years old, she contracted whooping cough. This was pretty serious as the disease hospitalizes half the children it infects. Very fortunately, she survived. And not just that, during the Great Depression, she, along with Loni Gordon and Pearl Kendrick, went on to develop the vaccine for whooping cough, despite having very little funding. Their work has saved countless lives. However, there's still a lot of work to be done 
and you can contribute to work on global health and development by donating to effective, evidence-based charities, such as those recommended by GiveWell, an organisation that finds the best opportunities for donors like you to make a difference. In addition to donations, you could also consider supporting the cause using your career, such as by working as a researcher in public health, just like Grace Elderly. The next cause area is animal welfare. Most of us have pets we love and adore. And I think all of us take pleasure in making them happy, just like this cat who loves a good tune. Even though this is such common sense, the idea that we should work to improve the welfare of animals is relatively new and often attributed to Peter Singer, one of the founding members of Giving What We Can. In 1975, Singer published Animal Liberation, which according to a New Yorker profile by Michael Spector, gave birth to the animal rights movement. So let's take a closer look. Why is improving animal welfare such an important cause? Animal welfare is important because it affects an unimaginably large number of animals. In the US alone, one million land animals are slaughtered every hour. And each year, 72 billion land animals and 1.2 trillion aquatic animals are raised and killed for food. You see, the scale is massive. And as a result, the meat industry is one of the largest contributors to climate change, making up 14.5% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Unfortunately, this is a very neglected problem. At least in the US, only 2% of donations go towards helping animals. And of that, only 1% goes to helping farmed animals, even though they're the ones experiencing the overwhelming majority of suffering. And the problem is also tractable. We don't need to be eating factory farmed animals. And there are actions you can take that could make a big difference. You could reduce your meat consumption, become vegetarian, flexitarian, or have a completely plant-based diet. You could also support the charities recommended by Animal Charity Evaluators, an organisation that's similar to GiveWell, except it focuses on which charities do the most to improve animal welfare. Whether you choose to support this cause area will depend a lot on your values. In a future video, I'll talk about some of the things you might have doubts about, like how to compare the suffering of animals to the suffering of a human. It's not an easy question, but if you're someone who cares about animals and you want to improve their lives, there is a lot that you can do. The last cause I'm covering is safeguarding the long-term future. I sometimes think about my future kids and the future of my kids, their grandkids and so on. And I'm really excited for them. I'm kind of jealous. <laughs> there are so many things I want them to experience and even more that I'm sure that they'll get to do that I couldn't dream of. Safeguarding the long-term future is about being a good ancestor. Like those who've come before us, we want to pass on the baton to future generations. We want to give our descendants a great shot of living a fulfilling and happy lives. By being a good ancestor, we have to think more carefully about the consequences of our actions today. And that's why it's so important we address the problems which might put these future generations at risk. One of the most obvious ways things could go wrong is nuclear war. In fact, we're already pretty lucky to be alive. And we might have this guy to thank. His name is Stanislav Petrov. During the Cold War, he was an officer on duty when a warning system reported a US missile launch. Petrov kept calm. It's probably just an error, he said. And then the warning of another missile came, and another, and another. Petrov disobeyed protocols, and he didn't report it, a decision which all of us today probably owe our lives to. I can't comprehend how much hung in the balance in that decision. Every single person I know, my parents, my wife, all of my friends, my kittens, get to live the lives they do because of Petrov. It's a story I find both inspiring and, to be honest, a bit horrifying. Making sure disasters like a nuclear Armageddon never occur might be the most important thing we can do. 
it doesn't just affect everyone alive, it affects everyone who could ever live. Think of climate change. It's not only bad because it affects those of us now by increasing the frequency of what used to be freak weather events, it's bad because it's causing long-term damage to our beautiful planet, our home, and our great-great-grandchildren are gonna have to pay the price for our actions. Relative to this enormous scale, the problem is relatively neglected. One of the world's leading experts on risks facing humanity is Toby Ord, philosopher at Oxford and a co-founder of Giving What We Can. In his book, The Precipice, he argues that one of the biggest risks to humanity comes from engineered pandemics. Think COVID, but much, much worse. Yet despite this risk, the international body responsible for the continued prohibition of bioweapons has an annual budget of just 1.4 million US dollars. Now, that's less than the average McDonald's restaurant. Toby is also concerned about another risk, and he's not alone. Billionaire philanthropist Bill Gates, theoretical physicist Stephen Hawking, and pop star Grimes all consider that general artificial intelligence could also be a risky technology. The primitive forms of artificial intelligence we already have have proved very useful, but I think the development of full artificial intelligence could spell the end of the human race. We don't know how powerful artificial intelligence systems might become over the next few decades or centuries. And we also don't know how to make sure that they care about our interests in the way that we'd want them to. There are other risks too. Throughout human history, there have been wars between major powers. But if there was a conflict between the world's biggest nations today, who knows how devastating the consequences would be. And then there's climate change, which we already know is extremely bad. We're not confident about how likely the worst possible scenario is and there's a chance it could make the planet completely uninhabitable. So instead of wallowing in the existential terror from all of these risks, what can we do about them? Are these mind-numbingly large problems tractable? Well, I think these problems are really hard, but there is work that you can do to make progress. You can support research organizations working to make sure that AI is developed safely, or help with the research preparing us for future pandemics. In a future video, I'll talk more about these organisations and why you might think that the supporting them could be the best way to help future generations. So if you're someone who wants to help as many people as possible, no matter where they live or when they live, and you're comfortable with a bit of uncertainty, I think that safeguarding the future is one of the most promising ways to have a positive impact. As I said at the start, choosing which cause to support is difficult. Even though I'm really excited about working on the causes I just talked about, there are parts of each of them that I'm really uncertain about. And there are still many more promising causes we could consider. What you choose to support will depend a lot on your values. For example, how much you value the cause areas I discussed today depends a lot on how much you value future people or animals compared to people alive today. It also depends on how your resources and skills match what's needed to make progress on a cause area. For example, at least generally speaking, both animal welfare and global health and development are in serious need of additional funding. Whereas organizations working to safeguard the long-term future mostly need people with specialized skills and knowledge related to specific risks. I'll talk more about that in the videos that cover each cause area in more detail. Subscribe and hit the bell icon to be notified when that comes out. For now, one thing you can do is join our community of effective givers at givingwhatwecan.org, where we can share our knowledge and help make each other better at choices about how we can do good in the world. I also recommend checking out 80,000hours.org for more information on how you can use your career to solve these problems. Until next time, keep on doing good.